Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I record this episode, the Darug and the Burramatagol people. I would like to pay my respects to elders both past, present and future. On this episode of The Female Drive. You know, you read about the Arctic ice sheet melting and um, when you see it, it's... It's really hard to put into words. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Female Drive. My guest on today's show has always worked in the creative field, when one day, by chance, she got thrown into the world of motorsport. After being given the opportunity to create a role within the Extreme E series, she landed on the role of Impact Correspondent, which while living on board the St. Helena ship, takes her to countries that have been ravaged by climate change. We talk about the major impacts and devastating effects of the climate crisis, because at the end of the day, that's what it is, a crisis. I'd like to introduce my guest on today's show, Isabel. Is it Isabella or Izzy? <laughs> Isabella, but is people call me Izzy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Isabella Reckiel. Hey, Izzy. How are Hello. you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for getting up so early and uh, joining me, even with the cameras on. And I mean, you look great. <laughs> Thanks. Now, um, just a little bit about you, and I'm going to start off. We we talked a little bit offline just now, um, but tell me a little bit about you as a kid growing up and what your life was like. Well, I grew up in Australia, as we discussed, and um, but my parents are Polish, so I grew up between both Australia and and Poland, and. um, uh, My upbringing, I mean, yeah, it was pretty normal. well, normal in the sense, you know, that um, I think Australian kids have it pretty, pretty great in terms of um, upbringing. And um, my parents took us to took my brother and I to to Poland every two or three years because they were basically political political refugees. So we had no family in Australia, and they wanted my brother and I to know our um, culture, tradition, our, our background. And um, now when I think about it, it was really interesting because I grew up basically in, in immediate post-communist Poland and then going back to Australia, every um, back, back to where we lived, um, which was, you know, quite a liberal country and already um, had those freedoms that the people there were, were, were so desperately latching, latching onto and just becoming too... Um, just becoming to get to know again after, you know, 50 years or even more of, of, of not being under their own rule. And um, it, it kind of, I think that's really what balanced me is I really got mm. to see, um, you know, extreme poverty and extreme um, on the other side in Australia, extreme, you know, freedom really, because I think Australia still has, maybe not now, I'm not really, I'm not really happy with the government right now, but um <laughs> You know, in terms of Poland, post-communist Poland and Australia, it was really too extreme. So I really had a great balance um, in my life. And, um, yeah, I think all these, my mom definitely championed a lot of environmental values into me. And I think she did that not knowing that she was being environmental per se. It was really, you know, from her 
bringing in communist Poland where you don't throw away food and you don't waste things and you really respect the environment, you respect your surroundings. So I'm really grateful for my mom for that. Um, She definitely instilled so many, both my parents, great values in me. So I think I had a pretty great upbringing. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess it would have almost like deep rooted. And and as you said, you didn't even realize at the time, but like it's probably deep rooted a lot of like, I see you on Instagram and things like that. And I have a lot of agreeance with the things you talk about and the things you bring to light. And I guess that's kind of stemmed from the experiences you had as a child. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, if if there's one thing I know that I have is a lot of empathy. And I think that's because from a young age, I was really exposed to so many different stories. And, and, you know, I, as I said, I grew up in Bankstown in, um, for the first half of my life, which is quite an immigrant heavy, um, area in Sydney. And at that time in Sydney, it wasn't a very safe area. So, Mm. but it was, um, it was great because I learned all my street smarts there and I learned, you know, I was in touch with people from so many walks of life, people who, who immigrated from war, from political um, regimes like my parents did. So I think I definitely got all my empathy from my upbringing, yeah. which has helped me in my role today. Now, how did you transition into, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you transitioned um, obviously from a child yeah. into an adult and then you've gone into quite an interesting life. You moved into, I think, modelling first and then into becoming a DJ. Yeah, so I, um, as much as I love Australia, I felt quite limited there mm. and I just wanted to get out on my own terms and, and I got a modelling tr- contract to Japan. Wow. So, um, you know, for my parents, I was kind of like, okay, fine, she can go. She's earning money. You know, she'll be independent. And, um, yeah, I went to Japan for what was meant to be three months, and I stayed two years. And um, then I just kind of went with that, and I learned how to DJ in Japan. Um, and then every city I moved to for modeling, either Paris or Milan, I knew some club owner, so I, I was asking if I can DJ. And at that time, there were not so many females that were DJing. Actually, in Tokyo, I remember – the I wasn't that great you know when you're just starting to learn everything but the reason I was getting booked is because I was a novelty I was a western girl in Tokyo um who was a DJ and um and then that kind of novelty continued um throughout Europe of course now every model with a laptop is a DJ so (laughs) there's nothing new about that anymore um but I don't play on laptops I'm very proud I'm proud that I still um do it the Old school. The, the old school way, let's, yeah. let's call it that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, I, and, and DJing was kind of um, a more transitional job. It was until I figured out what I wanted to do. And I definitely knew I wanted to be in the creative field. Definitely knew I wanted to be around people. I, def- I wanted to travel for sure. Um, and, yeah, but that transitional job, took a little bit longer than, I mean, I did it for 11 years. I'm still doing it. So it's, it's almost 11, 12 years now, which is great. I love it. It's, it's taken me to so many places. Um, it's taken me to extreme. I would have never met Alejandro, the CEO, um, if I hadn't been DJing and, uh, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely grateful for that. Even though when my parents found out that I was becoming a DJ, <laughs> come back to Australia right now. <laughs> And I guess um, I did, did, did get a university degree though during that. So, 
Oh. So I managed to juggle that. Yeah, you ticked off the education box for them. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and as you mentioned, they came from Poland. So when you were saying that, oh, I'm going to be a, a model and a DJ, uh, like now looking back, do they think, oh, yeah, it was absolutely the right move? No, they still don't really like what I do. Um, maybe now because I'm in, you know, with Extreme and more in kind of like a company, under a company umbrella. Yeah. So they, they see that I'm safer and protected. Um, but I didn't, not that I, I don't want to say that I didn't have their support, but they yeah. didn't consider that what I was doing was a job. And they, they just, they didn't like, they and they, they were straight out. They said, we don't like what you're doing. Um, get a proper job. Um, but, you know, I never, I was always independent from them. As soon as I moved out, I never asked them for money, never asked them for anything. So I have that on my conscience, knowing that it's I never bludged yeah. um, in Australian terms off them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, and, and I understand where they're coming from. They came from, you know, an upbringing when there was no security, there was no stability, yeah. there was definitely, no, you know, the opportunity for education was, was hard. And I was very smart at school. I think that's what kind of it, – it, it tore me apart a little bit as well because – when we what what is it UIA in in Australia? I got a very high UIA, so I could basically got get into any any university degree I wanted. And I remember when I was going um, when when I got that um, index, and I was like, oh my god, am I making the right choice? Like, should I maybe go and do law? Should I go and do something higher up? But it's it's not really my passion. Hmm. So um, when you and and I was the first child, so you know all all that expectation is on the first child, especially if you're coming yeah. from an immigrant family in Australia. I think a, a lot of my friends had the same experience, especially when they were first children, you know, all the pressure is on you. Um, so I can't, you know, blame my parents for, for maybe not liking what I was doing because I was going into a very discriminatory field, you know, completely based on rejection, completely based on, on subjectivity and also, you know, a very still male, I mean, male dominated in the fact that even though, okay, in fashion, it's the males that are still making the, the decisions. Yeah. And uh, my mum was always this um, propeller of women's rights. So she was like, why are you going into an industry where you will have no say? Yeah. They were just scared for me, really. But I persevered. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's understandable. Um, and you said that you kind of you took up DJing, especially while you were in Tokyo. But did mm. you have and and also you're doing really well at school? Did you have plans of what you wanted to do before you were offered the modeling contract, or were you just kind of going with the flow? Um, yeah, I wanted to. So um, while I was in high school, I did a lot of theater, and um, and uh, I was doing TV commercials, and that's kind of what I thought I would move into. I I got into a young acting um, degree from NIDA, which is like a dream. Mm. Um, but um, it was kind of going that way. And then I started traveling and I started seeing more and, and experiencing more. So I guess that kind of, I, I went with the flow there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess I would have maybe tried to be in the film industry if I was still in Australia, definitely. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to, to really, 
I just wanted to tell stories and I wanted to tell the stories of the, the people that I'm meeting and, and my travels and I guess, you know, jumping ahead now with what I do, that's a great, um, it's a great, uh, what's the word? I, w- I want to say mishmash, but it's so not. <laughs> um, <laughs> it doesn't sound scholarly. Like a meld um, almost of both. Yeah, it's a good worlds. melding of, of, yeah. of of what I wanted to do and, and, and what inspires me and what my passion is, which is to tell the stories of people through, through climate change and, 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 and their struggles. Yeah. Now through your DJing, you mentioned it just before you actually met Alejandro. Can you talk to us a little yeah. bit about that story about where you, you first met him? <laughs> yeah, it was, so I was living in Hong Kong at that time. I was DJing for a club there and he came in, I, I remember the day crystal clear, well, the night, um, him, Ali Russell and uh, Alberto, they were starting Formula E and they came into the club and I remember that walk, they were walking through the entrance and I said to the sound guys, like, oh my God, these three guys, I want to come into the DJ booth, lock the DJ booth. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, they came straight for the DJ booth and uh they were like, oh yeah, we have this electric motorsport series. We're looking for a DJ. We want them to, we want her to be female. It's going to be you. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And um, so anyway, they said, oh, yeah, we're having dinner with your boss tomorrow. Why don't you come? And, um, and they, yeah, we didn't really exchange numbers or anything. And I guess they just had confidence in that I would, I would reach out to my boss the next day. And so I, I um, I, I texted my boss. I'm like, Hey, I met these guys from, from Spain. They're starting some electric series. They said they're having dinner with you. And my boss in Hong Kong was quite protective of me. He, I think he didn't really, maybe he thought if I go with them, I'm going to like fly the, fly the Hong Kong coop. So he said, don't worry, I'm, I'll, I'll organize it. Whatever they want. I'll, I'll just pass them your details. And so I was like, okay, well, didn't really think anything of it and then a friend of mine in London texted me she said hey I have some friends in Hong Kong can you take them out and I said well actually my night just felt freed up because I was meant to go for this dinner and and I'm not going anymore so she gave me the details of of where to go for dinner and it was that exact same dinner so I think it was fate because I'm not sure my my boss in Hong Kong would have (laughs) would have passed my details on he was very much wanted me to stay in Hong Kong and um yeah so that's how it happened really and then we 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 met up again in london um they came to to a gig that i was playing and then i went to the formula e office they gave me a presentation and i was like yeah i would love to join it's really i mean i didn't really know much about i I knew nothing about motorsport there um then but i just wanted to do it because of the the great environmental aspect of it it really was um i mean the presentation blew me away it was really sounded like it was going to be something revolutionary yeah it sounds like it was just bound to happen you were just bound to meet him and and yeah. and work with him yeah and we just kept meeting even after even after hong kong when i came back to london we just kind of kept meeting up indirectly so someone would say oh do you know this guy alejandro and and it was yeah so serendipity wow and so you you go into Formula E and you said you've joined up because you you're thinking obviously about the benefits of it. What are you thinking when you kind of first go into the motorsport world and you start, you know, DJing at at these events? I remember it, it was very overwhelming because mm. 
uh, it was very clear everyone in the motorsport industry is quite tight-knit. Everybody knew each other. A lot yeah. of the people from Formula E came over from, from Formula One or they had worked with each other in some capacity. And everyone was very welcoming. But when you don't know anything about motorsport and you kind of turn up to the first race and you're like, oh, maybe I should have done my research. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, everyone was super welcoming and, and um, it was – it was the first seven years that I did was great. It was it was such a family. We were like a traveling circus, really. I've heard that a bit about the motorsport world as well, especially because, you know, everyone obviously travels in teams and you all go to the same place. And yeah, I've heard yeah. funny things about it. <laughs> so how did you move into now Extreme E? So obviously we know you were working within Formula E for quite some time. How, when did Extreme E kind of come knocking on your doorstep, I suppose? <laughs> yeah. So Alejandro, I remember we were in Mexico City for a Formula E race. It was post-race and, and and Alejandro and I had this favorite restaurant that we always went to after on, on the Sunday lunch. And he was telling me about Extreme E. And uh, he just said, like, I want you to come with me. So think of a, think of a role because I don't really need a, a full-time DJ. And... At that time, I, I really wanted to move to America. I really wanted to move to New York. And I was just putting together my visa. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm just, I'm just doing my visa now, which is so much work. I don't know yeah. if anyone has gone through it, doing an American yeah. visa. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, not ridiculous, but, but, you know, they have their laws. You have to honor that. But it was a lot of work. And um, I thought, oh, God, like this is so tempting. This is amazing to be asked you know, to have free reign over, over what I want to do. But kind of my dream la lies in, in, in New York at the moment. I really had my heart set on that. So with a heavy heart, I, I said no. And um, jump forward to, yeah, I guess kind of COVID and I got my visa approved and my lawyer said, you know, I want you to go to Australia to do your visa interview. So the way that I planned it was like, great, I'm going to go to Hong Kong in in March, because usually I always play their Fart Basel and, and, and I have gigs. Then I'll continue on to Australia, do my visa interview, and then hop skip to New York. And then, of course, you know, COVID started to flourish everywhere. And, um, and Hong Kong got completely cancelled, so I just went straight to Australia. And then literally on the third or fourth day of me being in Australia, embassies closed then a few days later the Australian government announced that anyone with an Australian passport is not allowed to leave the country regardless of your situation so I found myself stuck in Australia comfortably stuck mm -hmm. I was with my parents and I hadn't seen them in a long time so kind of took that opportunity for a lot of soul searching and you know just thinking what I want what what do I want to do with my life America is obviously not on the cards anytime soon. And um, I really kind of started to see the gravity of COVID. I, I knew that it was going to change the world. And um, what kind of world do I want to be a part of? Do I want to be a part of the change? Or do I want to be, you know, stuck and saying, oh, we're going back to that normal, um, which was pretty unsustainable. And, uh, yeah, so I had a few months to think about that and then I thought back to Extreme E and, and what Alejandro told me and so I just thought about this this role um, of impact correspondent and I finally managed to get back out of Australia again and um, I flew it was the E1 uh, 
kind of pre-launch. So it was like um, not the launch with the car, with the boats, but they were doing a launch in, in Monaco. And I just flew to Monaco and I did the presentation to Alejandro. And at the right at the end of the presentation, I don't know what came in my mind, but I was like, and I want to live on the ship doing it. <laughs> and he's like, are you serious? <laughs> I said, yeah. I mean, how cool would that be, you know, to, 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 to be on the ship. And I was kind of preemptive because I thought COVID, you know, everyone's in lockdown. This is the perfect year to, to, to be on the ship. And at least I'll still get to, to, to go around places and, and tell that story. And so, yeah, he was like, I love it. And, and that's how I kind of got it. Wow. That's incredible. So being, living on the ship was never actually part of it. That was completely your suggestion. I just, yeah, it just, I was thinking, I had thought about it before, but I thought, oh, there's probably regulations and you probably have to, to, I don't know, be a certified sailor or it was seafarers. I later found out. Um, but I just thought, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of never, I don't know if it's been done. I remember looking on YouTube for, for, um, you know, any clips of people living at sea or, or, or something like that. And you have your, you know, your scientific researchers, but they're kind of really in, in, they're not traveling around. They're not going around with the ship. They're just in that research area. Um, so yeah, it just was like, why not? How amazing. And how many people actually live on the ship? We have, uh, right now we have 50 crew, wow. but the minimum manning is 35. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. And this far into it now, you're still loving it? Yeah, yeah. It's nine months in th four days. Wow. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> the, the whole office had bets that I wasn't going to last until Greenland. <laughs> so hopefully I'll be collecting a lot of money by the end of the, the, the tenure. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's had its ups and downs. It's obviously very, it's, you know, you're on a ship with, with 50 people, but it can be quite isolating at times. And I never really got homesick. I've never been homesick in my life. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been definitely an adventure Yeah, you know, and an, you can't have an adventure without having both the ups and the downs. So yeah. it's just what makes it interesting. And, and I've really learned a lot, I've learned a lot about people. I've learned a lot about myself this year. So it's a very valuable lesson. Well, it's been fun following along on Instagram as well, kind of seeing where you're going, like you did Portugal for a while and then you go, you mm. know, to Greenland and, and, and all these different parts of the world that, you know, in different climates and, you know, it's pretty incredible yeah. to watch. It must be such a, an amazing experience, the fact that you're actually living it. Yes. Yeah. I love it. It's, um, it's, yeah, it's been an extreme experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we've definitely touched so many different people i mean i've i've met people of extreme wealth and i've met people of extreme poverty and without sounding too um not nostalgic cliche um uh, we the one thing i realized is the one thing we have in common is really the ability to control our future in terms of taking care of the planet. And, um, you know, even when we were in Senegal where there is extreme poverty there and, and they're very, you know, West Africa is very much uh, still dictated by the West. They still have a say. Um, and it just comes down to education, it comes down to education and awareness and yeah. 
That's amazing that, that, that at the end of the day, and I guess it just really comes down to humanity and how we're going to act as mm. humans for, you know, to protect our, our world. Um, I did know on, I noticed on Instagram, I'm going a little bit off topic when you were in Senegal, it was obviously like you, you ran into, you know, parts where you weren't allowed to film and things like that. What, what mm. was that experience like for you? I loved it. Whenever someone tells me I can't film somewhere, I'm I'm filming. But I, they they were just, I you know maybe it was a little bit stupid because definitely the area that I went to, um, I later found out it was um, uh, so this this area Han Bay was twenty years ago maybe like crystal clear, beautiful beaches. It was a mm-hmm. tourist destination, and then um, a lot of. Mm, a lot of foreign factories started to come in and build uh, in Senegal. And because of the really lax government regulation or maybe lack of government regulation, they were building their factories on the beach and a lot of the toxic waste was just being straight streamed (sighs) into the ocean, which in the span of 20 years completely devastated this area. Um. And I remember the, when I got taken there, the, the, the local guide who took me, he said, you know, if anyone asks, just pretend that you're from a fishing company um, and you're looking for a place to put your, your, your boats. That's why you're filming. And uh, thankfully, my French came very much in handy here. It really saved me. And um, I, when I was filming, I didn't really understand the gravity of the attitude of, of the, the situation until when mm. I went back. And when one of the seafarers here on the ship, when they saw that I were doing this, you really need to be careful because you're up against corporations here. It's, yeah. it's not you know, governments, it's corporations who have way, way more power than, than, than governments do or the police do. And um, if you expose, you know, anything that you're, that, they're doing it can be really can turn really nasty for you and he was telling me that um you know when he was working on some oil tankers or some oil rigs they would take away their phones or or any form of documentation when they were um when they were boarding them when they were flying over you know flying over to get to the oil rig so that that devastation and and that truth of what is really happening wasn't documented Hmm. Uh, so I felt a little bit like, you know, a photojournalist in a, in a war conflict um, zone. And, and, and you know, I, he was right. I'm, I'm not protected because I'm not, I'm not a journalist by trade, so I don't have any of those protections. Mm. But at the same time, I don't regret what I did because, you know, when, when you see journalists, um, especially in today's era of, of Fox News and, and mm-hmm. you know, Murdoch, journalists i don't know if they're portraying the truth or if they're portraying the agenda of that um of the the newscast or the media that they're they're working for i trust much more trust a civilian's point of view because a civilian just wants to show the truth really i mean i don't have an agenda i'm not being paid by fox news (laughs) or or i'm not being paid by these corporations to show hey everything is fine so yeah it uh, I guess you know caution does have to be taken, but I'm 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 still glad what I did. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's incredible how many corporations and governments. I mean, even through everything going on through COP 
26 and everything that's happening currently. And, you know, we're told time and time again that all these corporations have such a huge impact on climate change. And, you, you know, I guess like between you and I, we're people that want to see change and, you know, want to do better for the world. But, you know, I know it's a kind of different situation, but it just made me think like it's just incredible how many how much power people have. One thing I've, I've definitely learned is that corporations definitely control policy. The governments don't mm. control policy. There's so many politicians, even I've been watching COP now for the last two days and I'm really disappointed. It's just one big, it seems like one big political press campaign. Of, mm. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing, you know, as if, as if they're trying to say, well, we're already doing enough. Well, actually, no, because so far every single politician that has gone up there and, and had their speech is connected somehow to a fossil fuel industry. Mm. And if one thing I've learned is going you know, to all these places, uh, however remote they are, is that corporations are controlling everything. And um, they're trying to put the blame on us individuals. I still believe that you know, individuals collectively – probably now more than ever have more power, but that's yeah. because we have the power to take these, corp- we, we dictate whether these corporations survive or not. Mm-hmm. But it takes information, alertness, engagement and effort to, to do that. And I, I feel a little bit with this social media era, even though it's, yes, it's given civilians, you know, um, a, a, a an output to, to, you know, to put this information out there at the same time, it's made people so complacent mm. and this, this, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a, it goes hand in hand with, with itself. But I, I think people just need to really be aware that your government is maybe not working for you. Yeah. Absolutely. 50% not working for you. They're Definitely not ours anyway. <laughs> no. Well, Australia, it really breaks my heart. Every time yeah. I open the Australian news, it's it's so heartbreaking because Australia is such a beautiful country and we yeah. should be the pioneer in renewables. We should have been the pioneer in, in renewables since the last 20 years. Yeah. And they're just doing everything to to not go in that direction. And it's just clear as day that they're working for the mining industry and for the fossil fuel industry yeah at the expense of the country but especially when we have so many as you said like we should be pioneering it because we have so many accessible you know renewables Ooh. that we can use and and the fact that if you ask most australians i don't even think they know really what they are well with australia that's also another thing in in terms of you know people have a really comfortable life there i think mm-hmm. You can be, uh, you know, a, a, what is a blue collar worker in Australia mm. and probably have the same, uh, have a better quality of life than maybe a lawyer in Europe. Yeah. And um, I think that kind of comfortableness makes a lot of Australians complacent. Mm-hmm. And it's the reason why the Liberal the Liberal Party is still in power is because it's, it's that mentality of why should I change everything? Why should I change anything when mm. I have a good? Australians do have a good... They have a, you know, we, we, we still, I mean, I don't know, they're dismantling Medi- Medicare now, I think, right? But, but it's still, even at that, at whatever state it is right now, it's still better than anything that, that you know, in, in America. I mean, yeah. I, I would, that's, that's always scared me about America is, yeah. is that health, um, is the, the, the health sector they have, which is 
is scary. Like you, you know, the first yeah. question they ask you when you get into an ambulance is, "Do you have life insurance?" I mean, do you have health insurance? <laughs> yeah, we're not going to touch you unless you do. <laughs> yeah. Basically, so I think, I, and and you do see that in countries, you know, where where the level of the quality of life is good is maybe they don't really question the government that much. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I'm similar to you in the fact that I've been trying to get a US visa for a long, long time. And um, th- that is my biggest fear, I suppose, is the healthcare system and going over and, you know, because everything like they sell a job now and it's like, yeah, and we give you insurance. And it's like, well, yeah. I don't even have to talk about that in Australia. I've never had June, nor, nor London. It, nor... it makes you really, really grateful. I mean, I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. It yeah. makes you really grateful. And in, in the UK, we have NHS, which is, yeah. I, people complain about it so much, but it's really great, NHS. I, I mean, I you know, being an Australian in, in the UK, we have the reciprocal agreement. Mm-hmm. So, But I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone can access NHS and it's... It's always been great for me. Yeah, and I don't think you'd ever have to worry going to the UK and and no. worrying if if you do get sick, what's going to happen to you? Because you know when you need it, it, it really is beneficial. Um, I'm going slightly off topic. <laughs> We're talking yeah. about all the all the issues with the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, with your your job as impact correspondent. What's been one of the most, um, I guess, eye-opening experiences for you? I know we talked about Senegal, but are there any, any moments where really have kind of stopped you in your tracks? Greenland, mm. Greenland, going to the Arctic ice sheets. That I, I, you know, you read about the Arctic ice sheet melting, and um, when you see it, it's. Uh, it's really hard to put into words, but it really had a profound effect on me. And um, I got taken up the first time by one of the the local guides, and he took me by this this road that you can only access by by four wheel drive, and you're um, you're you're driving right on the perimeter of, of the ice sheet, and you just see the water. It's not even dripping; it's just coming down in waterfalls, and the the sheer force of that that lake that is um, being carved out by by the glacier, and we we I asked him to stop the car, and, and we just we sat there for for a few minutes, and I'm thinking, my gosh, the 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 force and and the amount of water that is coming off, and it just doesn't stop. It's like it's mm. like a tap that you know you can't stop. Mm. Greenland had a profound profound effect on me, and then we went up to the icebergs. We went further up north to Ililusat, and it was. Uh, I'd remember I had this surge of motivation and I was like, wow, I mean, we have to, this mm. Greenland has to be the turning point for extreme. This has to be the race where we, you know, get the most media attention and we really get all that content out there and as many visuals out there as possible, because not everyone can go to Greenland to see this, but it is so important. I you know, seeing is believing after all in this age yeah. and it, <laughs> I don't want to say we're screwed because I want to be optimistic, mm. but I remember being on that Arctic ice sheet and thinking, my God, if we have to do something ASAP because it's, it's, um, yeah, I, I, it's, I can't put it into words. It, it's had yeah. such a profound effect on me. And I think it comes to that thing, and I know we're talking about Australians being slightly detached and not thinking like, what well, doesn't really affect me? Why should I bother? And I don't think yeah. um, 
I, th- I think even I think a lot of our generation genuinely want to help, but I think there's an, a, a level, and maybe this is to do with social media as well, and there's a level of detachment that people don't actually, they know what's happening and the images are horrific, but there's almost a sense of like, mm, yeah, but you've seen it firsthand. So that would have been one of the most confronting things because it's no longer just yeah. an image on the news. It's reality. You're you're amongst it. Even, you know, the, the climate change... It, it's it's going to affect vulnerable populations first, mm-hmm. and people will never um, people will never start doing something about an issue unless it affects them directly. Even even in, okay, even in Greenland, I was talking to a lot of local people there, and the Inuits, the anyone who comes from the Inuit culture, they were telling me, you know, we we can't tell the the seasons anymore because we used to be able to tell everything from the weather patterns and and you know when to go hunting okay um they would tell it from the weather and you know whether the ice was forming and that's when they knew that that was the time to go hunting whereas if you speak to a if you speak to um in greenland you know maybe a danish person that has come there 10 years ago or someone who's i don't want to use the term white but not yeah. Inuit, so they're not yeah. relying on on the on their generational mm-hmm. um, legacy and the culture um, and the, that that connection that they have to the environment. They'll tell you, "Oh, this is great. This means you know that we have m- more sun now uh, in in the year, and and it's you know it's not as cold anymore." So it's this it's this detachment completely from the environment, and um, and it's kind of almost a, a, a selfish. Um, you know, this, this is great yeah. because, you know, I have eight months of sun now instead of six months of sun or, or, or better weather, um, you know. So, and, and that really tells you that there was a girl on the first day of COP. Um, she was from New Zealand, India Jones Riley, I think. She was, the, she was coming from the Indigenous community in New Zealand. And her points are so valid. And it's something, going back to Australia, I always was so angry and, um, confused why there are not more Aboriginal Australians Mm -hmm. in, you know, political committees and and these rural fire services. And they're the ones who who know the land the best. They're the ones who should be telling us how we should be dealing with these climate problems. Yeah, and with the bushfires as well, there's actually, you know, they've known for centuries how to actually deal with it. And, yes, it's at a scale that we've probably never seen before. And I think that's that's the only kick that Australia's had recently is the the bushfires that we had at the end of 2019 were in, in, like, I've never, I came home for Christmas and it felt like the end of the world. It actually felt like that. And, you know, I'm just in suburban Sydney. Like, you know, it wasn't, it didn't feel it was weird. It was, it was a very weird feeling. And I, and I agree with you. And the fact, this is one thing I mentioned in another episode is that in Australia, we didn't have, um, the leader of, um, indigenous, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but we didn't have an indigenous person in the role of the indigenous member until 2019. So, you know, even in our politics, Mm. we don't even have the influence, let alone, you know, and it's, it's crazy. yeah, it comes yeah. down to what what actually what what India said is 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 colonialism, you know, and and the yeah. remnants of colonialism and white people thinking that they know best. Well, we don't, obviously. Yeah, uh, we we don't live with harmony in the land. And and I was a little bit yesterday. There was a there was a lady um, 
what's her name, Julie Shepardson or something like that. She's from Forsky Mining. And she were they I can't I was a little bit angry first that they even had her on the panel at COP26 because she's from mining you know mining is one of the most destructive industries in the world I'm appreciative that you know we have you know I'm sitting on this ship because of the mining industry and we have a lot of of what we have technologies and you know and 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 modern civilization because of mining but there is this really this this, this disconnect with mm-hmm. with nature and the environment when you know she was sitting there saying oh yeah but we've switched to hydrogen and this and that and I'm like yeah but that doesn't make it right <laughs> just because yeah. you're running you're pillaging you're pillaging the earth now in a more sustainable way for you it doesn't make it right um, still putting them at the yeah, forefront it's, yeah yeah. It's interesting that you talk about even in Greenland how the Inuit people have almost lost their way of life because of climate change and then you've got the polar opposite mm. of, you know, and, and that in itself is so worrying. It's 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 horrible to hear, to be honest, because they're literally affected by it but they're seeing things so differently. Yeah, and actually Greenland, another thing I found out there was that Greenland has the highest suicide rate in the world. And I originally thought I was because, you know, they have six months of sunshine and six months of darkness. But the the reason is because they are losing their cultural legacy. So the, 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 the demographic that is committing suicide are young men predominantly between the ages of 18 and 25. And it's because their parental generation has lost the cultural legacy. So they're, they're, they're losing the hunting and they're losing, you know, everything that um, the Inuits were doing that was occupying them during the day because of modern technology and because of climate change. Mm. So the parents don't have anything to pass on to their, their children. And, and, you know, especially the men, which are still, um, which is still that um, what's, what's the term for it? The, the, uh, the core of, of the family structure yeah, in, yeah. in indigenous cultures, um, you know, the breadwinner. Um, yeah, the patriarch. And uh, and these men are feeling lost because, you know, their parents don't have anything to pass on to them. Um, they don't feel any connection with their with their culture and, and they don't have a legacy to pass on. And uh, it's they, they feel lost and, and, and suicidal and, then, and then that's what they're doing. They're committing suicide because they see no hope for their future. And this was really this this hit so hard, and it was it it showed to me that climate change doesn't have just a, a um, you know that tangible effect on us, meaning you know sea level rise and we're going to lose mm-hmm. our homes. It's the culture as well. People are losing their cultures because of climate change. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 hard not to get. Um, I think it's, and and like I said with Louisa, when I had Louisa on the show, it's really hard to not get depressed, but I think you've got to kind of channel that sadness into action, I suppose, more than anything. And it's not just sadness, it's anger as well. And like, you know, you see Greta Thunberg and and she is angry and, and everyone, you know, writes her off as this angry teenager, but it's like, no, she's just passionate. She started because, the conversation. Yeah. Know, she started the conversation and she, she, she brought, the whole issue into light because um you know paris when did the paris agreement happen in 2015 and when yeah. nowhere no country is near 
fulfilling any of the targets that they they said that they no. would fulfill. And she came about when two three years ago. She really she sped up that momentum. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and anyone, you know, she's she's a young girl, and anyone who says oh she goes she, she should go back to school is, it's just I see it as they feel threatened. Perhaps that you know this young girl has managed to create such a movement, and she has so much yeah. power. And it's interesting, even thinking back to like I'm a '90s kid, so like thinking back to like Captain Planet and things like that that we were being educated. Oh my god, I was just about to mention Captain Planet, but I thought the audience is not going to know Captain Planet. You know, I remember when I was a kid in in Australia, and yeah. it's I don't think it was that popular in Europe. Um, but I remember Captain Planet had such a huge effect on on my yeah. generation. I remember everyone watched the TV show, and at the end mm-hmm. of that show, they had like thirty or seconds or a minute of, you know, like this is what you can do in the house, like don't turn the lights on, and, mm. and when you're not in the room, and all these little tips, and and I remember. The kids in my class, at least, we were listening to that. Like we would yeah. turn the lights off when we were going off for recess or and, and things like that. And and um and I always remember, like I, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a planeteer. And I guess somehow I've kind of made that my role now. And it's like instead of being on that, what is it called, the geo cruiser, I'm on a ship now, traveling <laughs> around and and trying to you know save the planet in the yeah. way that I can. And um, yeah, and you think back to the, to what the kids have these days. They don't have anything like that. They, they it's all violence, and all these video games are about killing and and destruction. And yeah, it's time to bring Captain Planet back. I think. Yeah, I think it needs a revival. Actually, you don't look. Was it Linka the blonde? You don't look too dissimilar from her. I think yeah. you could pull yeah, off yeah. Linka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, costume <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> shame you just missed it um I remember it's funny you say that because even now as if I see a tap dripping I instantly am like turn it off turn it off because I remember that happening oh. and I remember like it was like this not a guilt but it's like if you see a tap dri- dripping and I think there was even an image of like the fish like slowly losing yeah. its water or something yeah. and like you know, little things like that. I remember always, and even as an adult, if I see a tap dripping, I'm like, oh, i got to fix it, got to fix it. And as you said, the yeah. lights, everything. So it, we've Imagine known. is very important. Yeah, and we've known for a long time. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the powerful tool that we have with social media is the imagery is we are able to link up, um, you know, certain words and certain phrases with with imagery and we have the imagery now you know we're able to go to greenland and and film the arctic melting and connect that with yeah you know everything everything is connected um all you know another thing that i've realized you know even though we've been in saudi arabia and senegal which are so detached what people are doing in saudi arabia is affecting Mm -hmm. the people in in senegal and what you know what senegal is doing is affecting people in greenland and it's it's all connected mm. well even the fact that the, the Australian bushfires were burning so heavily that it was pushing smoke all the way over to New Zealand at the time like it's just you and yeah, I didn't even know that yeah it's crazy like they were suffering from smoke because of Australia like and it's just I know that's a very extreme version of it but you're right everything is linked in one way or another and it has a knock-on effect and I don't think people realize and I agree like us as individuals need to be doing more in terms of like you know single use plastic and and things like that but also just having an idea of the 
bigger picture and and what's actually happening and what we can do and what you know tangible steps we can take to actually as you said I mean I don't want to say we're screwed either but it does it's hard not to feel that way yeah it's um I had to, yeah. I mean, I've been watching COP26 the last couple of days uh, the, since it started. And I, I, re- yeah. I, yesterday I had to turn it off because I was just getting yeah. really frustrated and angry. And um, mm-hmm. also, you know, what is it called? Climate anxiety. I started to get cl- climate anxiety. Yeah. And at the end of the day, yeah. you know, it's, um, you, you also have to kind of take a step back as well because, you would, you can just get overwhelmed with it and, and just fall into this vortex of negative thinking. And, you know, there are, yeah. there are so many things. So a- another th- thing about people having the power is that, you know, when you look outside governments and you see, even in regions, so what I try and do is every city that the, the ship goes to, I really try and find stories, local stories of what local people are doing just to benefit okay. their region. And I really believe in the, the, the trickle effect you know, just help mm-hmm. your own community, help your 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 own bubble, and 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 that um, behavior should should trickle out. And um, it's really inspiring to see what communities are doing to help their their mm. environments and and their own regions. And um, sometimes it's it's good just to kind of step back away from that global picture and mm. look around you and see all the good that's being done around you. Yeah. And I think that's one of the greatest things about Extreme E is not only are you bringing awareness to all of this, but you go in and you and and the goal is ultimately to make it better than when you got there. Yes, yeah, we definitely showed that with with Senegal. So in Senegal, our race mm-hmm. was in Lac Rose, and okay, we had one of our legacy programs was the Mangrove Project, which you know was benefiting mm-hmm. a, a wider community, a, a bigger region. But we also partnered with um, with a charity in in Lac Rose, which was just specifically um, focused on bettering that community. And that was, it was really, um, it was really, um, it really made me feel really happy that, you know, okay, we're, we're impacting people directly in this community. Mm-hmm. You know, we installed solar lighting. They had no lighting in that community before. Um, wow. And, um, yeah, we, we helped them, you know, make the market and we installed a floor in the, in the school, the school, they'd had no floor, they just had dirt. So we, we managed to raise money to, to, to put a concrete floor there. And, you know, you think, oh, the concrete floor, but for them, it's, it's a huge world of difference, you know, sitting on, on, on learning on a, on a dirt floor rather than a concrete floor. And there's these little tiny, um, little tiny, acts that that really make a big impact yeah yeah absolutely now obviously you're very passionate about um climate change and you obviously or you know this isn't new for you it hasn't been introduced to you through extreme e but now you're nine months into it are you shocked by how much you've learned in that time yeah i mean the 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 one thing that i'm really um alarmed about and I already knew that corporations had a had a control mm-hmm. over the world but I didn't realize to this extent and it is really to an alarming extent um mm. 
the you know in Senegal when I talked about those factories opening in in Senegal, the government knows. I mean, they got permits for it, so they're there. The mm. government is very well aware that they're there, but they're not doing anything about it because okay, yeah, they're creating jobs, but I'm sure someone is getting paid off. <laughs> um, yeah, so and does it just that's, that's what really really alarmed me is that wow, the corporations have so much power. It's very, very mm. scary that it's been mm. able to come to this. And I think that's even the fact that we have billionaires and yet we're still in this predicament, right? And I, I guess mean, it comes down to... came with, what, three trillionaires during the pandemic? That's, that is very wrong. Very wrong. Mm. And, it's, and it shows that yeah. there is, um, there is a, the system is broken. You know, capitalism mm. doesn't work. It's, 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 it's not good for everyone. It's only good for a select few of people who are already privileged. Mm. There's two billionaires in Australia, and I'm going off topic slightly, but um, there's two billionaires in Australia here from a company called Atlassian, I think they're called, and I probably pronounced it wrong, but they're very about climate. And I think um, one of them has just come out and said he's going to invest a huge amount. I can't remember the exact figure. I feel I want to say 1.3 billion, but I think that's incorrect. But it's something ridiculous. And I was just like, that's what they all need to be doing because you've mm. got money really from corporate greed and and this is where we are because of what corporations are doing basically yeah. so they're creating it so they need to fix it as well yeah yeah, yeah. um definitely definitely they need to contribute yeah. i mean you know when people say um Je- oh, jeff Be- bezos is a self-made man no he's not he made his billions mm. off the backs of of um yeah of a lot of people and a lot of exploitation, yep. you know. Yeah, okay, yep. he exploited the system. Maybe the system in America, the tax system in America is broken. But, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot. He didn't get rich by himself. There was no. um, it's all those people that, that he exploited and, and they definitely need yeah. to, to give back to the community. Um, I mean, Absolutely. what are you going to do in your life? Exactly, exactly. They shouldn't even exist as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> onto a slightly, I, we've gone uh, deep into, I guess, the sadness and the anger out of climate change. But on, on the opposite scale, so I, have you really enjoyed Extreme and the races and the atmosphere and, and the, the team of Extreme? Have you been enjoying that side of it at least? Yeah, so it's, um, I was, even coming into Extreme, you know, I did it more for the climate aspect and the environmental aspect, the legacy project, yeah. rather than the motorsport. I mean, I remember in 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 uh, Saudi Arabia, I was um, sitting with Team X44, and you know, this Sebastian Loeb, who's like anybody else, would yeah. be like, "Oh my God, I'm sitting with Sebastian Loeb." I had no idea who he was, and um, I really. Um, the extreme is really like a family, like all the teams, all the drivers, yeah. they sit together, they have lunch together. They, they, it's, it's nothing that I've seen in motorsport, especially, you know, in formula, yeah. e, formula one, maybe formula E has some aspect, maybe some teams, you know, well, they'll go to the after party together, but it's very, very rare yeah. to see teams together. Yeah. Extreme, they're all together and they're all helping each other, you know, in the, um, in the race now we had in Sardinia. Andretti was helping X Team X44 yes. um, to repair their yeah. car, and you know there's really this um, this 
um, attitude and behavior of sportsmanship and, and friendship, really, and yeah. all kind of working together for a common goal. And so I started to get a little bit more interested in motorsport, actually, thanks to Extremely, thanks to that, <laughs> um, that family feeling. And do you think that, I know you, you haven't really been interested in motorsport until now, but do you think it's a huge um, learning opportunity for other championships? Um, in terms of climate change or in terms yeah, of? No, in terms of, well, yes, <laughs> but also in terms of like culture, as we know, um, gender equality is really important um, in terms mm. of, yeah. Well, I don't the think they're ever going to put a female driver in formula. I mean, they have a women's series, right? So it's it's separate. Um, I think mm-hmm. Extremely is really in a league of its own because it's made, you know, it, it had the luxury of making its own rules up with the one, um, the one female yeah. driver and the one male driver. Um, but we were just talking about it the other day, actually, with some of the engineers, is that th- it's really powerful, this equality statement, because a lot of young girls are seeing that, you know, you can do roles that are typically reserved for for men and even um one of the engineers was saying that you know his niece he follows me on instagram because she's like wow there's girls that you know there's girls that can live on ships i thought it was just just all men so you know having that one male and one female driver is really sending a a big message to young girls um out there whether they're interested in motorsport or not they don't have to be interested in motorsport the fact that you know some of these women are sitting next to really accomplished rally um, and motorsport drivers mm-hmm. sending a really, really big message out there. And I didn't realize what effect that is having until I started, you know, speaking to, to, to some people who have children and, and have um, younger girls that are following us. And I was like, actually, I didn't think of it from that perspective. Yeah. It's funny how you bring up um, even how you said like you were sitting with Sebastian Loeb and like, you know, to anyone else it would be like a big deal. I remember Molly Taylor actually saying to me like, oh, and, you know, I was meeting Sebastian Loeb, like even she as a driver in the same competition. And I remember I was asking for a photo. I was asking for a photo, not with him. I wanted a photo with Cristiano and then he got in the picture. I'm like, I just want a photo with her. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> that's so funny do you think it's the common i do you think you were talking about how extremely feels like a family and do you think it's all because you're coming from the same place you're coming from this passionate about climate gender equality you know it's coming from a place of i guess i don't want to say pureness but it's like it feels very like pure there's not a whole lot of politics it's like i don't know yeah, everyone, you know, it's extremely is still quite small. Um, yeah. It, just for the record, I do want to say Sebastian Loeb is a very nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm bashing him. He's a very, very nice guy. But, um, no, I'm sure he is. I, I love Team X before this. They're so nice. Um, but back to the question. Um, yeah, extremely is still quite small. So, you know, everyone, everyone is learning and you don't, you don't um, make steps until, uh, without helping each other. So everyone is is helping each other, you know, like on, on the race day, even though my role is, okay, the correspondence I'll be doing behind the scenes, but, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm helping Nina, our marketing um, 
um, marketing manager and, and and helping with other bits. And and you and you have to do that. I think and definitely in a startup. I don't really want to call yeah. us a startup, but we are. Um, you know, definitely in your formative years, you have to take on more roles and you have to help each other and you really have to have the strong community um, sense of trust. Otherwise, yeah. what are you what are you working for? Really, just a paycheck? Like you want to build something, build something that everybody looks at and is like, "Wow, I want to be a part of that." Now, just before we wrap up, so you're you're well into extreme. Has that tra- changed your trajectory about what you want to be doing? Like, have you now rethought about your career, or is New York still on the cards eventually? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, I was thinking about the other day. I don't know. I, I would still love to go to to, to New York, but um, yeah. I definitely want to continue on with Extreme E. Yeah. So I guess it's going to have to wait. Um, yeah, I really <laughs> just, I wanted to go to New York because it was the reason was not 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 really for a career opportunity, but it was more because I, I've spent time in New York before, mm-hmm. and. Um, what got me was just the sense of adventure you have in that city and the people really, mm. the people and the stories that you're meeting, um, the people that yeah. you're meeting and the stories that you're creating every day. And in a way I already have that with extreme E now because I'm you know, going, meeting amazing people, meeting people that I probably would have never met if I was in New York. Um, so I, I have that, but it's just flipped now to a different scenario. Well, it's nice you found you found kind of what you were looking for. Yeah. I understand the appeal of New York. I really do. I love I love New York as a city. It's it's fantastic. Now, if you had any kind of I guess final words uh, in regards to anyone needing to know more about climate change and what we can be doing, do you have any a short? I don't know how you make it a short summary, but <laughs> is yeah. there anything you want the listeners to know that we really need to know? Just be alert ask questions all the time and and in question I mean I know it's a cliche but question everything yeah. um, especially with you know with our media with 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 so much um, monopoly behavior in our media in terms of ownership you know there there mm-hmm. are agendas and um, just question everything there's a, there's a yeah there's so much information out there but don't take everything for, for face mm. value. Um, and, you know, you see that a lot with Instagram where, you know, people will post things and, and they don't fact yeah. check. Fact check. There's a great, I mean, Snopes.com is great. <laughs> I know it's like, it's not a, it's not a literary or, or, or a university yeah. website, but Snopes.com is really, really good at fact, fact busting. That's a good one, actually. I need to use it more. <laughs> um, but read, read and talk to people and, and keep your eyes open and, and, and my gut has always helped me in, in, in life and, and listen to your guts. And yeah. yeah, that's, that's what my advice would be. And just finally, if you had the opportunity um, to speak to a young Izzy, what would you say? Any advice? Um, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know really. Uh, nothing needs to change. Maybe nothing. I, think <laughs> I did everything. I did everything. I really did everything my way. I mean, I was always seen as like the black sheep of the family and controversial. And even now, sometimes like Alejandro tells me you need to be a little bit more politically correct. But um, <laughs> I just, um, yeah, maybe nothing. I, I guess yeah. just keep doing it. Say, say yes all the time. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I love what you're doing. Don't get any more politically correct, please. We've got enough of it. It's fine. I love, and you know, I've reached out a couple of times on Instagram on things you've posted and, and sometimes you articulate things that I don't know how to, and I don't know how you, you're really good at it. And, and I, yeah. And it's amazing because I always want to, I always want to just take what you said. And then re-chunk it into like my Instagram because you say it so well and the things you cover are so relevant and yeah, no, I think it's great. And, um, I'm really glad to have had you on the show. It's been really a nice chat. Thanks for having me. Of course. We finally got there. (laughs) Yeah, we did. We did. No, well, thanks so much, Izzy. Have a great rest of the day. No problem, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thanks. On the next episode of The Female Drive, I speak with Matt Bishop, whose career has spanned decades in the world of Formula One. We talk about the many historic moments he has witnessed firsthand and the benefits of inclusion and equity in the Formula One world. Mm